You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is To Stir With Love, a criminal justice reform podcast, a very special edition. Uh, we, uh, a number of weeks ago, we uh, featured a conversation uh, between a, uh, a criminal defense lawyer and a public defender. Um, that public defender is here with us again, uh, Mr. Bob Goodman um, from uh, Skokie, Chicago. And um, uh, the re- reaction that we had to that program was so positive um, that there was calls really for, uh, for Bob uh, to return and to really expand on some of the things that they were talking about, especially uh, some of the interesting and, uh, and I would say even fascinating aspects of being a public defender. So Bob has agreed to meet us here on, uh, for what is him somewhat of an early start here on a Friday morning in, in uh, beautiful, as we said before, beautiful uh, autumn Chicago morning, Bob. Thanks for coming on, and I know that uh, you know you're going to give us really a, um, a a presentation about the role of what a public defender does, and uh, I know that uh, uh, we'll talk a little bit afterwards. So take it away, Bob. Thank you, Rabbi. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Bob Goodman, and I was an assistant public defender in Cook County, Illinois, which includes Chicago and its suburbs. I retired a few years ago, um, but I was in the office for 34 years. Um, I want to tell you that what I'm about to talk about is not for the faint of heart. Um, It was a pretty rough field uh, that I dealt with, but I'm sure that you will find it uh, interesting. I worked on and was the lead attorney for thousands of cases, both misdemeanors and felonies, including crimes such as domestic violence, robbery, rape, drug cases, murder, drunk driving, unlawful use of weapons, and theft. But today I want to begin by talking about two specific cases that stood out to me in my career uh, and I hopefully will give you a clear picture of what I did. The first case involves the meanest and the scariest defendant I ever represented uh, over those 34 years. He was a 28-year-old white guy, and he was about 5 feet 7 inches, 130 pounds, And he had two sets of teeth in his mouth, one on top of the other. But that's not what made him really scary. He he was charged with repeatedly raping his stepmother after tying her to the bedpost in his apartment. That was bad enough, but he also had two prior convictions, one for armed robbery and one for the rape of a girl in a laundry room. Because of his criminal record, he would suffer life imprisonment without parole if he was convicted of these charges. I saw from the police reports that the crime went unreported for about 10 days. So I asked him, what were the circumstances uh, by which he was arrested? And he told me that 
his father called him one day and said that his wife had told him what happened and he was going to come over and uh, threaten to kill the son. My client, knowing his father was really scared. And so he called the police himself and said to them, uh, please come over. My father's threatening me. The police came. And when the father came over to the apartment, the police started to handcuff the father to arrest him. But to make a long story shorter, the father was able to get out the accusation of the rape uh, of the stepmother and the police wound up arresting the son, my client, and let the father go. Um, I This took place over weeks and months, but I, I, I asked the defendant if he knew whether the stepmother still wanted to prosecute, and he told me that he had no idea. And I explained, well, we need to find out, because I was aware that uh, having done a lot of cases in domestic violence, that the victim often changes his or her mind as time passes as to whether they want to go ahead and press charges. So like I said, by this time, months had gone by and I had gotten my investigator uh, to locate the stepmother so we could talk to her. And she, it turns out that she had moved by herself uh, at this time to Henderson, Nevada, which is near Las Vegas. We could have taken the easy way out and just called her on the phone, but we thought that she was unlikely to talk to us when we told her that we represented her stepson, uh, her alleged rapist. So we flew out to uh, Las Vegas, my investigator and myself, and after doing some gambling, we, uh, we located the stepmother in a trailer park in Henderson. And I, I, we went there so that we can assess her credibility her eagerness to come back to Chicago to testify and generally to see how angry she was about what had occurred. And after talking to her, um, we found out that she was an extremely nice person and she was totally credible and she was more than eager to come back to Chicago and put my client away for life, which is what she said that she hoped would happen. So uh, my investigator and I flew back to Chicago. We were a touch poor and we told the defendant uh, the results of the investigation and really advised him that he needed uh, us to negotiate with the state's attorney uh, and see what we can do for him. And he reluctantly agreed. And eventually I got him an offer of 34 years of which he would have to serve half of that or 17 years in prison. And I counseled the defendant on the risks of going to trial and said that if he pled guilty, he would be out of prison when he was 45 and he would still have plenty of life to live on the outside. And he eventually agreed and took the plea bargain, and he's still in prison today. He never once um, denied the charges uh, that were before him 
in all the conversations I had with him. And there's a question that I would like the audience to ponder uh, before I go on to the second case. And that is, why would the state's attorney offer me, in effect, 17 years in prison for a repeat offender who was a multiple rapist in an armed robbery when they could have put him away for life by going to trial in a case that they were sure to win. Now, I want to go on to the second case, which had a much happier ending. This case, my client was charged with an attempt murder of two people in a parking lot of a pizza hut. A man and woman ordered a pizza and were waiting in their car for it to be ready. It was nighttime and a man came up to them and said, you can't disrespect me in front of my friends. And he shoots twice into the car, hitting the man once in the arm. The woman who was not injured ran back into the pizza parlor and called the police while the shooter ran away into the night until he was out of sight. The woman told the police, I know who did it. The guy who shot at us applied for a job at the Dunkin' Donuts that I work at. And the man who was shot, but he wasn't shot seriously, he eventually goes to the police station and he picked out the defendant from a photo mug book. So they both identified uh, my client uh, as the shooter and they eventually arrested my client and the man and woman independently picked him out of a lineup. I told the defendant that two people identified him as the shooter and the woman knows him from Dunkin' Donuts and that makes her identification even stronger because the more you know someone from before, the better the identification is rather than you just saw someone very briefly while you were scared and it was nighttime. And that's not a strong identification. But in this case, she knew him from before. And he admitted that he had applied for a job there. But he said, I'm innocent to this crime. Now, months went by before he was actually arrested. And he so naturally, he, did, he didn't remember where he was when the incident occurred. And I told him, you've got to give me something because this doesn't look good for you. And you're facing up to six to 30 years. He told me that he told the police he was innocent and that they should look into his phone to see if they can figure out where he was at the time of the shooting. The police took his phone and sent it off to the FBI to see what they could find. And the FBI sent back a report, which I read, but I really couldn't understand what they were saying because I was not an expert in cell phone technology, nor any technology uh, actually as my family would attest to. But as it happens, our office had a forensics unit that had expertise in DNA, gunshot residue, fingerprints, and also cell phone technology. And I borrowed one of their guys to be with me on the case. 
And he told me that the report from the FBI looked good for us, but they would never willingly help our side. And I confirmed that by talking to the woman FBI agent who wrote the report, but she wouldn't give me the time of day or tell me uh, or help me in any way. So we hired an expert out of North Carolina. And what he basically told us is that the shooting occurred at 8.55 p.m. on the date of the incident. And just maybe coincidentally, the defendant had made seven phone calls at or about that time. Three of them right a couple of minutes before the shooting and four a couple of minutes after the shooting. And the importance of this evidence was that the defendant's cell phone pinged off a cell tower that was four miles away from where the man and the woman were shot at. He couldn't have been both at the shooting and making calls on his phone somewhere else. It was, in effect, an alibi. And he was somewhere else at the time of the shooting. Now, the, there was no phone call at the exact time of the shooting. Uh, there was one before, two minutes before, and one two minutes after. But in that distance, he couldn't have come all the way to the pizza place, shot the people, and um, go all the way back to where the cell tower was. And uh, further, they never saw the shooter get into a car. They saw, saw him run away uh, on foot. Now, the one flaw in this defense was that we can prove his phone was making calls four miles from where the shooting took place, but we couldn't prove that the defendant was the one who had his phone on him at the time making the calls. He could have given his phone to someone else who was making the calls. So we countered this problem by getting his girlfriend to be a witness for the defendant to say that two of those phone calls were to her and that no one had ever called her from the, the defendant's phone but the defendant. Now, that wasn't perfect, but it was the best that we could come up with. So on the day of trial, the state's attorney comes up to me and says, you know, we have two witnesses who are going to say your client was the shooter. And I said, well, my client says he's innocent and he wants to go to trial. And the state comes back and says, well, see if he'll take probation. So I conferred with my client and told him, you know, the state has two witnesses who are going to say that you were the shooter and one of them knows you from before. So it's a pretty good identification. They're offering you probation on a reduced charge if you plead guilty you'd have a conviction on your record for the rest of your life. And if you screw up the probation, you could still go to jail. But this is a case of attempt murder and it carries six to 30 years if you're convicted. So, you know, if you take the probation, you, you're guaranteed that, that uh, at least you won't have to go to jail. What do you, and I asked him, what do you want to do? And, and he says, I'm innocent and I want to go to trial. So I went to the state's attorney and said, he tells me he's innocent, so we're going to trial. And so we went into the courtroom when our case was called. And I said, 
we're ready for trial, Your Honor. And the judge turned to the state and said, state, what about you? And the state said, after conferring with our victims, Your Honor, we're dropping all the charges. And the judge turns to my client and says, you're free to leave, case closed. Now, another question that I'd like the audience to ponder in this case is, why would the state's attorney try to get my client to plead guilty and receive probation when they knew all along that they intended to drop the case? In theory, their office exists to see that justice is done, not to get a conviction no matter what. Bob, I want to commend you. I, I, I feel that, um, you know, you remind me a little bit of a, of, of, of a Chicago version of Jack Webb. <laughs> you know i you know the old dragnet you know because i i definitely you feel you've really you've really taken us back into these cases and before you move on to to, to your statement uh first of all you know i i would hope you know you you served so long and so well uh and uh I, I hope that after those 34 years that you, your years of public service are uh, that the the Cook County and, and is providing with you a decent pension. I hope that's the uh, case. They are your uh, rabbi. That that was the one good thing by uh, spending so much time there. Right. I know that that's, you know, many Jewish uh, individuals uh, sort of gravitate towards a public service jobs within uh, the community and in this uh, because they, they they don't pay so much up front but they do take care of you and i'm and i'm sure the, the type of harrowing situations you were in you definitely deserve it uh let's you know you had two cases and and, and like you say one we'll call i guess uh the case of the rape stepmother and the other the case of um the uh the cell phone uh proof so in the case of the the, the raped uh, stepmother um, it's such an ugly case. I mean, uh, the woman in, in involved, the his stepmother, he was 27. And the, the, the woman was, uh, how old was she? I, I just estimate, I don't remember specifically, but she seemed to be in her 50s. And okay. what happened, he was on parole and he had just gotten out of, I'm not sure which one, the other rape or the armed robbery. And he asked her to come over to his apartment and take her somewhere. And when she came over, that's when the incident occurred. And so again, I, I say her age because it's so unseemly. I mean, this is this is like his dad's uh, new wife, and here's a, a son, you know, violating not only a woman, but 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 violating uh, a relationship and a bond between his dad and doing it in such an aggressive, horrible way. Um, could you have said? I'm not taking this case. You know, this is just too disgusting for me. Could you have said that? Uh, Rabbi, that's actually a really good question. And what happens is, is that we do not get to pick who we're going to represent in the same way that defendants do not get to pick which public defender they want. If we were allowed to pass off the bad cases to a different public defender, uh, that really wouldn't be fair. And it also wouldn't be fair for the defendants to pick which public defender they wanted because 
if a public defender, a particular one, has a great reputation, everybody would want him to take their cases. And so there's just a rule that everybody lives by is you take whatever cases you're assigned to and the defendants take any public defender that they wound up getting. Mm -hmm. It's luck of the draw, to tell you the truth. Right. And I remember this was uh, part of the discussion that you had with Jonathan Minkus when we had a, uh, a, a conversation between the two of you that we had here on our on our platform. Um, you know, it's interesting in that case, in the rape stepmother case that, you know, you guys had to go find her in Las Vegas. I guess the first thing, my first inclination was you said you came back a little bit poorer um, who, <laughs> from the gambling, from the gambling. Oh, you didn't have to. But the money was paid for by Cook County. Right. Correct. We didn't have to pay our own way. That's uh, we have funds uh, for investigations and it has to get approved. But this was such a serious case because the person, if convicted, uh, if he went to trial and was convicted, would get life imprisonment. So that was the kind of case that they were willing to put out money uh, for us to go out there. Uh, so I love the way the bean counters are working. In other words, if this guy is guilty, we're going to have to keep him for all these years. That's a lot of money. Maybe it's worth spending money up front so we can save the, the, the we can save the county money later by not having to uh, put him in hold him in prison for that long. That's an interesting way of looking at things. What, now, the fact that she ran away. I mean, I know Henderson a little bit because I've been out. I took my son when he turned 21. We decided I said uh, I said, Chaim. We're taking a trip to Vegas because that's where you want to go. But on one condition, on your birthday itself, you might want to go into the uh, to gamble. But we're going to the Grand Canyon in order for us to daven, kivasikin, uh, to daven with the sunrise and 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 really meet God. So that that's what I remember from my trip to Vegas. But um, I want to ask you. Um, the, why did she run away to Henderson? Is was she scared? I mean, the guy, the guy was behind. The guy was in prison. Was there some problem between her and her new husband? I never. That's a good question. Again, I never specifically asked her about that, but it was pretty clear that the father was not with her in Henderson. So it may have been the case when you get something that traumatic between your new husband and your stepson. How do you really recover from that? And somehow my gut feeling is that the uh, marriage broke up over uh, the incident and she got as far away as she could. Um, you know, you know, be, you know, you the case was in a, in a sense, like you said, how credible she was uh, that the event occurred. Um, but it's so, uh, you know, obscene. You said he had two sets of teeth. I mean, this sounds like Hannibal Lecter, you know, with, with, with uh, you know, on, on steroids. Uh, did you think about bringing in a psychologist and maybe trying to use a psychologist to, you know, garner some sort of sympathy for your client? To tell you the truth, like I, I said, he, he was the scariest and meanest guy. He, he wasn't physically intimidating. It was just something about him. And given that what he did to his stepmother, along with an, a, a, another rape of a younger woman and an armed robbery, he, he was, I think he was just a psychopath and that he had no empathy for human beings or, or, or any type of a moral character. And now, obviously, all my cases were not like this. I, I, I brought this case specifically 
because it really affected me my whole career about that there are people like that out there. And okay, so here's a little bit of an uncomfortable point, Bob, you know, and I've come to really admire you. So I'm going to make you uncomfortable here for a second. Because of you and because of your understanding of what was going on, despite your your, your intense feelings and, and disgust, right? He's going to get out, right? He, 17 years, he's going to serve. And assuming he he stays clean in, in prison, he'll be out. So, you know, it's because of you that he's out at 45, still a threat as opposed to um, uh, a, a much older man that could probably be handled. How, 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 do you, how, do you, how do you sleep with that? Actually, I was going to mention that issue later in my talk, but I would say this, a couple of things. Number one is he's not really happy with me uh, because he's serving 17 years. I didn't win the case uh, for him in the sense that I got him released or I got him uh, found not guilty. So I actually sometimes think that when he's out, you know, there's, it's put me a little bit in danger myself. Uh, but secondly, you know, I, I, I had literally hundreds of cases that I, I did feel bad about, you know, when I did a good job for them because I understood that they may have deserved more time or gotten found guilty uh, when I won the case. And, and it, it, it's, it's a moral issue that, that I've always uh, struggled with in my, my career. And, and I can't give you a good answer how I can do this and, and, and feel okay about it. It's not clearly not for everybody. And I, I said, it's not for the faint of heart. You either feel comfortable in that situation or you don't. Well, you know, Bob, you know, the, the... This is a uh, audio podcast, but for those of people who are listening, I could tell from you know seeing you here on the Zoom um, uh, projection how difficult it is for you to even speak about it now. So I know you know how, how painful it is. I'm going to give you a rabbinic sort of response, and I want to ask you about the cell phone case. Um, what I would say is, look, someone is going to be doing that, and your 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 effectiveness in your job is going to allow you to help others who are innocent, like the cell phone case and, and, and others. So you know, if you would be just a person who would just, you know, say, no, I'm not taking this and, you know, and I'm not cutting a deal here, you would lose, a person like yourself would lose the stature of a public defender where you could do so much good. So I think, you know, you have to look at it in, in the large picture. Having someone like you is, is important. And part of that is to be involved in cases, even when you have uh, such people and, and, and getting them plea bargains because this allows you to do good in so many other cases. I hope that uh, makes you feel a little bit better. You probably thought about it yourself. I'm not saying anything that's terribly profound. Um, well, they, Rabbi, the second case makes me feel better as an answer to the first case. I really believed that the person in, with the cell phone case was actually innocent. And I feel like I went out of my way or did a good job for him anyways in, in getting the result that I got. So there you have a person who two people were, were going to point to and say he shot into the car at us. And I 
pretty much was able to prove that it, it wasn't him. So there you go. Uh, it's an exact contrast to the first case. I was able to do a, a good deed for a person who deserved it. In other words, and he spent about eight months in jail because he couldn't make bail. And I've always felt bad about that because I kept trying to get him out of jail and the judge refused in, in, until the trial. Uh, and he was an innocent man. Now, that that fellow in the uh, cell phone case, uh, the fellow that they fingered and, and said that was the guy that shot in us. Um, um, what was it that he screamed when he came into the car? He said that uh, you disrespected me. What did he say or something? What was yes, that he, he said you disrespected me in front of my friends. And that was going to be part of what I was going to show at the trial is that they didn't know him. There was no incident between uh, my client and them where he disrespected him. Mm. And I was going to point out this was nighttime. There was a guy with a gun threatening them. Uh, they couldn't see clearly. The whole incident took place in about 15 seconds. And so I was going to emphasize, even without the alibi, that that it was a case of misidentification. I think you would have had a strong case if I would have been the judge there. And I, 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 I was thinking about that as well. You know, what was really fascinating besides the... Um, you know, the fact of using the cell phone uh, technology to realize where he was with the pings of the uh, cell phone towers. What I thought was, was very interesting was it sounds like there's some tension between the FBI forensic people and, and you guys. I mean, I thought we're all on the same team. You know, the FBI has powers that, you know, we don't even know what they're able to do to do sting operations and do all these type of things to get arrests. But ultimately, they're here to protect the common good, to do the right thing, to stand for justice. I mean, so why is it that it seems like there's this issue that the FBI had with the Cook County defenders? I also think that's a very good question, uh, Rabbi, and I would answer it this way. In the state case, cases, the police are an arm of the state's attorney. They feel like they're bonded together and their purpose is try to get the evidence to convict a person accused of crime. In the same way that the FBI is an arm of the U.S. attorney and those two cooperate with each other in order to, again, get the evidence to put someone away in the federal system. There's not usually cross purposes between the FBI, who's usually the federal people, and us who do the state work. But in this case, they sent off the phone to the FBI. And I know, or I knew rather, that they would treat me in the same way that the police treat me uh, as a public defender in state cases, uh, they consider us the enemy, the opposition, the opposing side, and therefore uh, they're not bound to cooperate with us. And in this case, she wouldn't help me out at all when I talked to the FBI agent. Again, you know, we know that most of us need motivation to be um, excited and, uh, and competent in what we do. But this sounds like, you know, childish in a way, because, you know, my team, we're about putting people behind bars and you're about uh, taking people out of uh, out of prison. No, we're all part of a, a system of justice and, and, and creating a safe, a c correct environment for people to thrive in. 
<laughs> and so the checks and balances has to be there. Otherwise, you have a fascist police state that just throws everybody in. So you would, you know, so the idea that you're on their side, oh, they're on their side. That sounds like kids in a in a, in a playground that they have to have shirts and skins, and and otherwise they can't play basketball with each other because you, I have to see you as the other guy. That's again, we talk about criminal justice reform, and I know this has been your story. But I think people listening to this see uh, uh, evidence of where the reform has to happen. Um, you know, otherwise, you're right, you're going to have, you know, people saying, well, at least I got the conviction, as opposed to was justice served. And I guess that's, um, uh, you know, you know, that was your, your question that you asked, which is clearly the, the state knew how weak their case was. And yet they were trying to sort of like, you know, deal with you to hopefully get you to agree for this probation that would, or, right, that would put a record on somebody. Um, and you are wondering, you know, what, what do they gain from that? What do they gain from notching something in their ledger where it says, we got this guy, oh, he's on probation, but look, it, it, it's, it's, it's almost like notches in your belt that you could say, that's what you're doing? Absolutely. And that's why I gave you those two cases, because in each case, um, I had a problem with the state's attorney. In the stepmother case, my problem was they should have gone all the way and taken this guy to trial and not offered him anything and try to put him away for the rest of his life. And it would have been an easy case to do that because she was so credible and would have no reason to lie. But they took the easy way out that, hey, we'll just offer him something. He'll take it. And who cares whether he gets out again? In the second case, the attempt murder case, the cell phone case, um, they went the opposite away. They went too hard. They were just totally wanted to get a conviction so they could say they didn't lose the case rather than to do justice and understand that it was pretty clear that my guy was not the shooter. Instead, mm -hmm. they were more interested in a conviction than in doing justice. Yep. And I can go on a long time about sure. what think about the state's attorney, but this isn't the no, time. I understand. Just a couple more points on the, on, on the cell phone case. You said that it took a, a he spent eight months in, in jail, but it took many months to find him. Um, you know, that's a little bit interesting because he was fingered and you said there was a lineup. You would, you would assume that even in a big city like Chicago, uh, a guy who comes in for a lineup who's in the mug magazine, they know how to find this guy. You know, why did it take so many months to finally uh, to, to issue the arrest warrant? I, I, I'm not I'm not uh, that clear because he actually lived in the neighborhood. Um, and so maybe they just didn't put a big priority on the case or maybe he kept clean and uh, all that time not. Uh, th the truth was he had some kind of a criminal record because the man picked him out of a mug book and you and I would not have our pictures in that mug book. It's only people with prior history. So he was known to the, uh, to the police uh, and he did live in the area and, and I'm not quite sure why it took so long uh, to actually oh. arrest him. Yeah, again, these are some, you know, the labyrinth of, of police procedurals I know is very, very, uh, especially in a big city like Chicago. Uh, one of the things, you know, before you, you know, you had the um, the corroboration for your cell phone uh, ace in the hole was the girlfriend who said, yeah, he, I was getting calls from him. 
normally when you have a case like this where you have a girlfriend who is the alibi um how usually in a in a courtroom how strong is is, is a girlfriend's word um in defense of her boyfriend or her husband or right or is it is, is usually discounted because we assume you'd say anything because you you have a relationship with that person um again that's a good question and a girlfriend's defense of her boyfriend in in a criminal case is almost always completely worthless the credibility uh of witnesses depends on how objective they are so if my client said he was a uh with a priest at the time of the shooting and the priest said yeah he was with me that would be completely credible a girlfriend almost has no credibility but what we discovered of the seven phone calls that took place uh we knew the numbers of of the phone calls that he he was talking to and we discovered that two of them did go to the girlfriend and like i said the weakness in our case was he could have given the phone to someone else who was making those calls so the best we can do was that the girlfriend who we can prove uh that the phone calls went to uh she could at least say that no one else had ever called her on that phone but the mm-hmm. defendant mm-hmm. which is why i said it wasn't a perfect defense because she's the girlfriend but we had to show something to prove that he may have had the phone and was making the phone calls himself okay just just two more points and again you know you sort of let my genie out of my bottle you know what i'm saying because you asked me to take some notes i have just two other points over here bob one point is um uh, based on what you just said the girlfriend the wife eh, we don't accept that priest of course he's objective do 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 the um, prosecution like uh, knock away when oh he's my golf buddy oh he's someone uh, I, he was part of my uh, uh, fraternity brother oh he's someone I daven with in shul do, do they also knock that I mean in the middle do they also question you know alibis that are in the middle people who aren't the priest the objective man of truth but how about somebody that you have kiddish with you know somebody that that you happen to be uh, play basketball with once a week. Do those people also get attacked in court as being uh, lying for the sake of, uh, of of getting someone off the hook? Everybody who goes uh, and becomes a witness is attacked in court. One side is putting them on and is vouching for their credibility, and the other side is attacking their credibility. And people who use their friends, their parents, their girlfriend for witnesses, because that's the only witnesses they have, obviously they're going to be attacked so the more objective the party who has no stake in one side or the other would always be the more credible witness which i think you know again i know people come to me bob uh to ask should because i i work as a judge of, in the courts of arbitration uh in jewish issues and in, in, in halacha and people ask me should they go to court should they not should they take the trial and i'm t- i always tell them there's an emotional toll and a difficulty of sitting there, even in front of three nice rabbis, that you're going to be asked questions, you're going to be uh, probed. I would assume that a lot of people um, would be hesitant to even come forward because they don't want to have to sit there in the courtroom and have a prosecuting attorney question whether they're lying and do they really mean it. And, and many of them, 
right? I assume it's it's a difficult thing to sit there and have and have someone suggest that perhaps you know we know this about you and you know are you really such an honest person? And that that's a that's a tough thing to be able to withstand. I think, and it's um, that's why we have uh, subpoenas in our system. So when we give them a subpoena, they understand that uh, they have no choice. Ordinary people want nothing to do with the criminal justice system. And you see the biggest reluctance on the parts of prospective jurors. How many people do we all know they've been called for jury duty and want nothing to do with it? They don't want to upset their routine. They don't want to take time out in something that they have uh no interest in. And so everybody is reluctant in the criminal justice system to be involved. One last point, and, and then I'm, I'm going to let you sum up this very fascinating uh, in, uh, discussion and, and talk. And, uh, you know, the, the guy who, who felt he was disrespected, was there an, that, that shooter who wasn't your client? Was there an attempt to go after him? I mean, let's go find him. I mean, this is a guy running around with a gun who shoots people. Uh, you know, is there any postscript that they find the real guy? I mean, the guy who's really out to get them. I mean, I would assume that's pretty. That's that. That would also should be a priority. Your guy's innocent. The 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 the, the guilty guy is still out there with a firearm. I would answer it this way. Uh, in that case, a little bit. It was like no no uh, harm, no foul, like on a basketball analogy. The guy wasn't seriously hurt. The woman wasn't shot at all. They were okay. I mean, they may have been traumatized, which is bad enough. Uh, And the other problem the state had is anybody who was now arrested for the crime, they have two people on record who identified somebody else. Mm -hmm. So once they've identified somebody else, they lose their credibility by saying, oh, no, I was wrong that time. This time I'm right. So their case went down the drain once they were willing to identify my guy. And and, and, and there's a person out there clearly with anger management issues, even if you want to say he's not a, a clear and present danger to people, I guess, on the south side of Chicago. Bob, why don't you wrap this up with your summation? OK, uh, thank you so much. They were very good questions, Rabbi. Um, now that I've talked about those uh uh, specific case, I, I would like to just speak, speak briefly about the role of the public defender uh, in our criminal justice system. As an assistant public defender, I represented poor people accused of serious crimes that did not have the funds to hire a private attorney. Not that they would necessarily have gotten a better lawyer if they hired a private attorney. Many of the finest attorneys in the country who do criminal law are public defenders. People believe that if they pay for something, they will get something better, but that's not necessarily the case. The great majority of the people that I represented were locked up in jail awaiting trial or disposition of their case. They hadn't been found guilty of the crime that they were charged with, but they could not come up with the funds needed to make bail. This often amounted to getting their hands on as little as $500 or $1,000. And I had cases where my clients remained in jail because they could not even raise $100. That's a problem in the system since you're presumed to be innocent, but somehow you're in jail 
before you've ever been convicted of the crime. There needs to be bail reform so that more people are fighting their cases uh, from the outside rather than from the inside. I was in a courtroom almost every day of my career fighting and handling cases against the assistant state's attorneys. Prosecutors and public defenders have the most courtroom experience as compared to any other type of an attorney. We are the ultimate litigators in society. The system set up to offer an incentive to the defendant to plead guilty and receive a reduced sentence. Trials are very much discouraged because of time management, lack of effort, and indolence. This is not true of everyone practicing criminal law, but it is true of too many. Finally, we briefly talked about uh, uh, what I'm about to say next, and I'm going to put it in, in, in this way. Um, the most asked question I ever received when I practiced law was, how do you defend someone you know is guilty? I.e., like the first case I talked about um, with the rape of the stepmother. To me, that's a moral and philosophical question that I've never been able to adequately uh, answer. So what I do is usually turn the question around with one of my own and say, don't you believe someone accused of a crime has the right to an attorney to represent him? That person may not be you, but it fit me just fine. And thank you. And are there any more questions based on what I just uh, said, Rabbi? Well, you know, I think, you know, Bob, you uh, you remain as someone who uh, uh, indicates, you know, the the qualms, but yet the uh, of doing what you were doing, but the importance of what you were doing. And I think the, uh, uh, you know, the many, many uh, persons who you aren't in connection with anymore they the, their quality of life and, and positive things that they're going to be doing can be directly traced to you you know if, if you have a person that you were able to uh, to to get a, a reduced sentence and if it's true like we've been pushing in this podcast that that the prison should be a place where change happens and they come out of prison better people you've given them the years of their life to be able, you've helped them have those years of their life where they can actually do positive things and good things and, and, and be a proof that people can turn and people can change. And if you didn't give them that, if you didn't give them that, then they would have rotted away. They wouldn't have been able to, to come back. They wouldn't have been able to, to be a model. And I think that, you know, if, if you, as you say, uh, these are, these are, the benefits that we all have of the way we touch people in so many ways. So I think, Bob, people need to realize that, you know, that you are, uh, you are a gift giver. You're a gift giver of possibilities of, of, of all those, you know, uh, all those great things that hopefully those people can do. And I, I think ultimately this podcast and, and part of our religion that we both share is the, the belief in the greatness of what humanity uh, can do. Uh, the change of what people are possible. Hopefully the way they're treated in before they get into the prison and in the prison is a way that 
is always uh, looking at that purpose. And if that's the purpose, I think that, uh, you know, you're, you're not part of something grimy and ugly. You're part of something noble and something that uh, is, is, is in tune with, you know, the greatest ideals that God has for human beings. Well, that's my rabbinical sermon to, to sort of like uh, put a little point here. So that's it, my friends. We will uh, hopefully see you again uh, soon on another episode of To Stir With Love. Thanks again, Bob. Have a good job, by the way. Bye-bye. Thank you. Same to you. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.